I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Genesis chapters 4 through 7. Now, this podcast uses the New King James Version text, and my comments are slightly abbreviated from the full podcast using the King James Version. Chapter 4, beginning now with verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. In this passage, Eve initially bore two sons, Cain and Abel. The wording of verses 1 and 2 leads us to believe that they were twins, one conception, two boys. Now, there's been much discussion among Old Testament scholars regarding Eve's statement in verse 1 after Cain emerged. She says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. First of all, Based upon the wording in Hebrew, it has been suggested that she was boasting that she, as God himself, was able to create a man. That notion would suggest a less-than-right attitude toward God on Eve's part. To reinforce this theory, this statement is contrasted to her exclamation after the birth of Seth in verse 25 when she says, For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. In that verse, she clearly gives God the glory for the birth of Seth. The second conjecture regarding her statement is quite noble on her part when it suggested that she was exclaiming joy over the birth of Cain because she thought he was the Messiah. In order for that to be a viable theory, one must absolutely believe that Eve understood Genesis 3.15 to be a prophecy regarding the Messiah. I'm just not certain Genesis 3.15 is to be understood as being messianic. However, since the Hebrew word for Adam and man are identical and can only be differentiated by context, perhaps she was expressing amazement that she bore a little Adam. Abel kept sheep and Cain grew produce. That's really beside the point. Obviously, they'd been instructed that their offerings were to be animal sacrifices, not fruit and vegetables. Some have suggested that Cain's offering was fine, but his attitude was wrong. That doesn't seem to be the problem according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where it says there, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, 
God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. According to this verse, it's apparent that the sacrifice itself was wrong. It seems that Cain was to offer an animal sacrifice. Nothing else would do. That being the case, it's the familiar scenario of man trying to circumvent God's standard. Now, there's another point here. Cain could have made it right, according to verse 7, but instead he chose to slay the person who did do it right, his brother Abel. Why did he do it? Well, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 weighs in on that when it says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers righteous. Well, there John tells us that Cain was motivated by Satan. The exact Greek adjective, paneros, is used twice in that verse by John. First, to describe Satan, when it says that wicked one, that's paneros. And then to describe Cain's actions leading to the sacrifice that he made before God, when it says his works were evil, and that word evil there is paneros as well. Let's face it, this was no mistake, no inadvertent shortcoming on Cain's part. Cain was our first example of outright rebellion against God. There's a lesson about the unregenerate life to be found here. Did Cain disobey because he lacked faith that God was God? No. He knew exactly who God was, and he still disobeyed. When people we meet stand in defiance against our Savior, the reason can be summed up with just one verse in the Old Testament. That verse is Psalm 10:4, which says, The wicked in his pride countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. In Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 9, Cain and God have a discussion. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives, the name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Adah bore Jabel, he was the father of those who dwelt in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, 
an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Well, lying to God, how could that have seemed like a good idea? It's just like the child with the chocolate all over his face who refuses to acknowledge that he took the candy. God placed a curse upon Cain here, but forbade anyone from taking his life by placing a do-not-kill mark on him. Now, here are the provisions of Cain's curse by God. First of all, Cain was cursed from the earth in verse 11. He would not be successful as a farmer, we see in verse 12. As a fugitive and vagabond, Cain was destined to wander from place to place, we also see in verse 12. As such, Cain feared that he would be slain by others, we see in verse 14. Cain's life was protected by God with a seal, verse 15. He made his home east of Eden and built a city named after his son Enoch. Now, this isn't the Enoch who was later a descendant of his brother Seth in Genesis chapter 5, verse 18. Verse 16 says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. We see something of Cain's descendants after this, the first occurrence of polygamy with Lamech in verse 19, along with our second occurrence of the violent taking of a life in verses 23 and 24. Perhaps it was self-defense, but it was a tough family. And then we see a new birth in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Verse 25 And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, with their righteous son dead and their other son an exiled murderer, Adam and Eve are very excited about the birth of another son, Seth. Eve's expression of joy in verse 25 indicates her gratitude that God had restored what Cain had taken away. By the way, Seth is the Hebrew word for substituted. Incidentally, the last sentence of verse 26 is obviously meant to add significance to the birth of Seth when it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It obviously marks the beginning of an era, but what kind of an era are we talking about here? Before we answer that question, consider this. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, only three possibilities initially come to mind. Well, first of all, God created more people. Mm, Let's see. Secondly, they were descendants of Abel before his death. Or thirdly, they were descendants of Adam and Eve. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us directly, but scratch possibility number one there, that God created more people. Paul makes it clear that everyone has an Adamic sin nature because everyone is a descendant of Adam. Therefore, Cain either married his sister or his niece. We're not told specifically, but we get the impression that neither Cain nor Abel bore children prior to the murder of Cain. Whichever the case, Adam and Eve obviously reproduced other children prior to Seth, but Seth gets special mention here. It could be that Seth was the first male child born into this world after Abel, who was not a descendant of the wicked Cain. 
It seems quite likely that Seth marked the beginning of a righteous God-worshipping bloodline after the death of Abel, and so it said, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That would also explain Eve's statement in verse 25 when she proclaims at the birth of Seth that God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. Eve must have had a long string of girls in between the births of Abel and Seth. We do know for certain, as a matter of fact, from Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, that Adam had sons and daughters. However, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3 tells us that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. We have a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he had begot Enoch, Jared lived... 800 years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, chapter 5 here is the record of the descendants of Adam through his son Seth down to Noah and his three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
In all, 1,656 years are spanned by this chronological record, from creation to the flood. Notice that Seth is given elder son status in verse 4. As a matter of fact, Noah's genealogy traces back to Seth, making Noah's three sons, who are the father of us all, also descendants of Seth. Yep. As a matter of fact, through Adam bore other sons and daughters, it says. Seth must have been the third son born to Adam and Eve. A bit of information is included along the way with special note in verses 21 through 24 regarding Enoch. Notice verse 24, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch didn't die. God just took him. That places Enoch in a very special category. Notice what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 regarding Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Well, there's no question here. Enoch didn't die. Notice how long everyone in the Seth bloodline lived and how old they were before they had their firstborn sons. Those lifespans begin to shorten after the flood. Where it's not uncommon to find these firstborn sons before the flood being born when their fathers were well over over a hundred years old, Abraham after the flood was considered old at one hundred for the purpose of fathering a child. Could it be that the canopy of water we saw in Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6, along with the absence of rain, somehow shielded humans from negative environmental impacts that later perhaps caused rapid aging? Well, who really knows for certain? Now we see some beings in Genesis chapter 6. Let's begin reading with verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, there's a doctrine that the sons of God, of verse 2, is a reference to fallen angels. It's further said that these angels intermarried with humans to create a race of giants. Many conclude that there's at least one major problem with this theory. And that's this. Christ said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Does he not plainly say in that passage that angels don't marry? Many therefore conclude that verse 2 is probably making reference to Cain's descendants intermarrying with the other descendants of Adam and Eve. After all, the only other genealogical record given to us besides that of Seth is that of Cain. If this discussion interests you and you want further information, then click on the Link there on the page in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, and it'll take you to a greater discussion on this issue. Now, perhaps these fallen angels possessed men who married the daughters of men in verse 2. In other words, demon possession here. We know that on numerous occasions in Scripture we have seen the demon possession of humans. Jesus himself cast out demons from other people. Demons are no more than fallen angels, therefore it's at least a reasonable theory that the sons of God could refer to men possessed by these fallen angels. Well, the bottom line is this, it's all speculation. No one can know for certain what exactly verses 1 and 2 are really describing. 
We see in verses 3 through 7 that we have some serious wickedness on the scene here. Let's look at verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now verse 3 here has a phrase open to diverse interpretation. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he indeed is flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. What does that mean? That man will only live to be a hundred twenty years old after that point? Well, men did have longer lifespans than 120 years after Genesis chapter 6. I don't think that's what it means. The rest of the chapter talks about the wickedness on earth and the man Noah, whom God raised up for the remedy. I think this period of 120 years is a reprieve from God's judgment. In other words, 120 years from Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 until the flood comes and destroys virtually all of mankind from the earth. Now, if you'd like to see a greater discussion on this issue, then on the written notes at this point on the page, there's a link. Click there, and it'll take you to more discussion on this issue. Now, one more interesting aspect of this 120-year period. What did Noah do during this time? Peter gives us a hint to the answer in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 where Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. It seems safe to assume that God gave the wicked people of the earth a 120-year reprieve, during which time Noah preached salvation to them. They refused that salvation. Now, as an aside, Lamech, Noah's father, lived 595 years after Noah's birth. We see that in Genesis 5.30. So he died five years before the flood, and Noah's sons were born when he was 500 years old. That's according to Genesis chapter 5, verse 32. So they were 100 years old when the flood came. Now the Hebrew word for giant, verse 4, is just used in two verses in the Old Testament here, and in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, where it refers to the large people in the land of Canaan. However, the word may be translated bully rather than giant. All other Old Testament occurrences of the word giant come from a totally unrelated Hebrew word. Since we saw Lamech's threat of violence, Cain's descendant, in chapter 4, perhaps the point intended here is that the intermarriage between Cain's descendants and the rest of mankind resulted in the birth of some really wicked, mean-spirited men. Well, with that being the case, or that being said at least, let me introduce you to what I consider an erroneous doctrine that's commonly held today. It's widely taught that the sons of God of verse 2 were supernatural beings, fallen angels, 
who reproduce children with mortal women, thus producing these giants. As I said earlier, I'm relatively certain that angels just don't have what it takes to reproduce. Therefore, I take a less exciting view of the origin and identity of these giants in verse 4. Sometimes I'm just boring like that. Then we find the remedy in Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Noah, go out and build an ark. Verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did." Now, Noah was righteous before God. We see that in verses 8 and 9. The rest of the inhabitants of the earth, with the exception of Noah's family, well, they were condemned to death because of their wickedness, as verses 12 and 13 tell us. God instructs Noah to build an ark, a huge floating box about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and three stories high. That's in verses 14 through 16. Keep in mind, it didn't have to sail. It just had to float. By the way, flooding was an unknown phenomenon back then. Well, as a matter of fact, so was rain. Remember how the earth was watered back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6? It was the process of evaporation and condensation, but never rain. While Noah's building an ark because of the threat of a flood by rain, well, it must have seemed kind of ridiculous to all those wicked people standing around watching. Rain? What's rain? Well, they'll soon find out. Here we find the first usage of the word covenant in Scripture in verse 18. God's special covenant will be through Noah. If you'd like more details on that, then click on the link there on the page. It takes you to the notes on Genesis chapter 8, beginning with verse 21 down through chapter 9, verse 17, the covenant that God made with Noah. 
Noah then gets his instructions regarding the stocking of the ark, which is continued into chapter 7. In chapter 7, it's time to pack up and go. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you each seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah and his sons, his wife and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shemaham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort." And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, all that was on the dry land, and died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the earth, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now here's a Bible trivia question. How many of each type of animal did God instruct Noah to put into the ark? Now, you may want to read verses 2 and 3 before you answer that question, because you'll see there that it's seven of the clean animals, while only two of the unclean animals. Well, now Noah's 600 years old, and it starts to rain. First time he sees rain, 600 years old. It only rained for 40 days, but the waters covered the earth for much longer than that. As a matter of fact, 150 days before the tops of the mountains 
began to peek through. If you'd want to see the chart that shows the um, milestones on that flood, what happened on what day, then there's a link there on this page that'll take you over to chapter 8. There you'll find a chart. The cataclysm of the flood caused a landscape transformation after that. Mountains and valleys were accentuated, the highest previously being less than 25 feet. Well, that's according to verse 20. And the land masses were divided into continents. It was truly a global occurrence. Verse 24 says that everything upon the dry ground died except those in the ark with Noah. Where did all that water come from, you might ask? Well, here's your answer. From above and from below. First, back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Keep in mind, before this flood, it had never rained before. There was a natural evaporation condensation process. That's what watered the earth. That means that there was a canopy of water encompassing the earth. Well... That canopy collapsed. But wait, there's more. If you read ahead to Genesis chapter 8, verse 2, you'll notice there that there were additional fountains of the deep. That was water under the earth, and it also surfaced. At all the water from above to all the water under the earth, well, that's a lot of water. Remember this from Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. There was originally a single landmass surrounded by water on the earth. Well, that landmass disappeared. And when the water subsides, providing dry land over a year later, the topography of the earth, well, it's changed at this point. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that the topography of the earth continued to transition into what it is today over just one man's lifetime. That man is Pelig. He's seen first in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, after the flood. The water reached its highest point on day 150. One more interesting note here is to be found in verse 16, where it says, The Lord shut him in. God himself sealed them into the ark. And that may explain why they stayed in the ark for 87 days beyond the discovery of dry land. They didn't leave that ark until God allowed them to leave. Now again, if you'd like to see a table of what happened when with regard to the flood, there's a link right at the bottom of the page which takes you to the Genesis 8 commentary. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.